There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Hey, Twisters, what up? Happy New Year. In so many ways, I am happy to be moving on from 2016, but in some ways, 2016 was a pretty amazing year for me and my family. My daughter switched to online school, and it was one of the best decisions we ever made. I finally got over my fears and started writing and publishing my writing, and I launched Twisted Philly, something I had no idea how to do, but I'm still sort of figuring it out as I go along. And then, in a myriad of other ways, 2016 was a fucking cluster. It started with David Bowie, who, like the quote I've posted numerous times on social media, may have been holding together the fabric of the universe. Kenny Baker, our beloved R2-D2, Prince, that one broke me for a while. Leonard Cohen, Alan Reichman, I found out about that one and lost my shit. From the moment Hans Gruber walked onto the screen in Die Hard, I thought, who's the hottie? And then his role in Love Actually and Dogma and so many other movies. And then I fell in love with him all over again as Severus Snape. Anton Yelchin? What the fuck? Odd Thomas can't die. He's the guy that fights the monsters. Gene Wilder? Can't even go through all the movies and the reasons why I loved him. But I did feel bad when everyone on social media kept saying, now he can be with Gilda. I get the sentiment, but he'd been married to a wonderful woman for many, many years after Gilda Radner passed away. And then there was Patty Duke, like Patty friggin' Duke, what the hell? Muhammad Ali, such a legend in so many ways, Alexis Arquette. And then just when you think 2016 can't get any shittier, December hits. George Michael. Wham! was the first non-parental concert I attended when I was 14. As in, it was just me and my friends. And I snuck a tape recorder into the vet. Yeah, it was at Veterans Stadium. But I had a tape recorder in my purse and blank tapes, and I recorded as much of that concert as I could. And now I'm wondering, shit, can I get in trouble for confessing to that, even though it happened 33 years ago? The music of George Michael has been so influential over my life, as was Bowie and Prince and Michael Jackson before them. But in a very difficult time in my life, a dear friend gave me what was George Michael's new album at the time. It was Patience. And this friend told me to listen to the song Amazing, because that's what they thought of when they thought of me. I can't believe George Michael is gone. I was at the 25 concert, and it was one of the absolute best concerts in my life. And all those last Christmas memes popping up, like, those people can go fuck themselves. You guys know I have a pretty twisted sense of humor. There's very little that can offend me. But I find absolutely nothing funny about those. Then December 27th hits. Carrie Fisher. At the end of my Christmas Day episode, I talked about Carrie's impact on me as a little girl. She was my hero for 40 years, and she will continue to be my hero, even though she's now in a galaxy far, far away. The day she passed, I lost my shit. I had so much research activity planned, going to the Montgomery County Courthouse, visiting crime locations, and instead I was home sobbing. I wanted to crawl into a ball in the fetal position and hide. And I gave in to that despair for about a half hour, and then I said, stop being a punk-ass bitch. Carrie dragged her ass out of bed, taking seven different medications a day for her mental health issues. 
If she's your hero, act like it. There's a quote from Carrie about the Leah Slave outfit that is probably my favorite quote of hers because to me, it represents so much more than what she thought about that moment playing a character and more about her voice as a woman breaking off the bonds of stereotype and struggles and Hollywood just to be a force for herself and for others. And it went something like this. The thing that killed me about this setup was, okay, you put me in a bathing suit, but then I have to stop talking from here on, strip me and I'm silent. I was so very happy to kill Jabba. It meant I could talk again. They asked me if I wanted a stunt double to kill Jabba and I said, really, really not. I really want to kill him. And then a day later, we get the news about Debbie Reynolds. Ugh, I am the podcaster who cries and curses and laughs at myself and thinks I can sing when we all know I cannot. I'm not going to talk about Debbie Reynolds because then I'm going to lose it and I'm not going to be recording much of anything. Okay, so now that we are all fucking depressed, let's move on to less depressing topics like what-ups and tales of murder. So what up to my friend Katina, who initially told me she couldn't listen to Twisted Philly because she doesn't like anything spooky or scary. And then a couple weeks ago, I get a text from her that says, I'm almost at episode seven. And I was like, what? Girl, you crazy. She also told me that it wasn't as scary as she thought, which makes me think maybe I need to get a little darker and a little scarier. But I love you, girl. Thanks for listening. What up to some new listeners who found me in the Facebook group podcast we listen to. Esther Joy, who has been on a Twisted Philly marathon. That is commitment. Maggie, Amy, Alex, JC, Jennifer, and Kaz, you guys totally made my week between Christmas and New Year's. I was like a kid on Christmas morning when I saw that post because I said to myself, oh my God, that's my show they're talking about. Yo, I wish all Twisted Philly listeners were in the tri-state area. Um, that's what we call the PA, Jersey, Delaware cluster, for those of you who don't know. But then that way I can hang out with everyone. And Kaz, I have a number of friends down under. I am going to have to plan a trip, maybe treat myself after my daughter graduates high school in a year and a half. So we'll see. I'll keep you posted. iTunes ratings and reviews keep coming in. Thank you so much. The Twisted Philly buzz continues to grow. And every day we pick up more listeners and more Twitter followers, more folks following the show on Facebook. It's crazy, but it's crazy good. I'd also like to take a minute and give some love to our sponsor, the Sofa Kings, who are just coming off an amazing New Year's Eve event at the Water Tower in Oaks at Arnold's and playing Music Fest Cafe in Bethlehem last week. This former WMGK house band covers all genres of music, including dance party, classic rock, Motown, alternative, R&B. They do top hits from the 60s all the way up through today. They book private functions, including weddings, fundraisers, corporate events. So let them help make your event amazing. If you want one of the best bands in the city, look no further because the Sofa Kings deliver and they have a special promotion just for Twisted Philly listeners. If you mention the Twisted Philly podcast when you book the Sofa Kings, you get 10% off your booking fee. That's sort of amazing when you think about the expenses for entertainment. These guys are fantastic, and I am a live music junkie. What I love most about seeing them play out live is the way they interact with their audience. A Sofa Kings event is one of the best nights you could have. 
so what are we talking about today? I want to tell you a story about a very famous serial killer. Probably one of the most prolific, notorious, and to me, one of the most disgusting serial killers in U.S. history. No, I'm not talking about Gary Heidnick. Seriously, it's only been three months. I'll get to Gary sometime this year. But I'm talking about H.H. Holmes. And so now you're probably thinking, what the fuck, girl? He's not from Philly. That's not a Philly story. Well, there is a Philly story here. So I've heard a number of podcast tales about creepy old H.H. Holmes, and everyone is different because there are just so many despicable, disgusting details to share about this guy. And honestly, some of it makes me sick, like almost makes me vomit. I was listening to another show months ago over the summer, and it was an episode that went into a little more detail than I was expecting, and I thought I was going to throw up in my mouth while I was driving along the Ben Franklin Parkway. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to make you guys throw up. But I am going to tell you a little bit about H.H. H. Holmes and how a murder in Philadelphia is what brought this man to justice. That's right, Twisters. It was good old Philadelphia police who arrested, tried, incarcerated, and ultimately hanged crazy old H.H. H. Holmes. H.H. H. was born Herman Webster Mudgett. Yeah, try going through life with that name. Is it any wonder he changed his name to Howard Henry Holmes? Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. Dr. Howard Henry Holmes, because this guy did actually have a degree as a physician. Holmes was born in 1861, and you all know from previous episodes, that's a period of time about which I love telling stories. It never ceases to amaze me just how twisted people were in the late Victorian era America, although H.H. wasn't all that twisted when he was very young. No, his demented tendencies seemed to lie dormant until his teens when he started dissecting animals. But hey, the guy graduated at high school, enrolled in medical school by the time he was 16, so I don't know, maybe he passed off the animal mutilation as part of his studies, and nobody was any wiser. Holmes first attended college in Vermont, not far from his home in New Hampshire, where he married young, around 18, and had one child, a son, but found that the University of Vermont really wasn't to his liking. So in 1882, he transferred to University of Michigan's Department of Medicine and Surgery. Now, he made a bit of a name for himself during that first year there, running insurance and cadaver scams. It all comes back to medical schools in the 1800s and a shortage of cadavers. Holmes would steal and sell cadavers for profit. And when he wasn't busy desecrating the dead through direct sale, he ran insurance scams. He took policies out on people that didn't actually exist, and then he would mutilate cadavers to perpetuate all manners of death and pass them off as the insured so he could reap the insurance premiums. This guy should have hung out with the grave robbers from another episode of Twisted Philly and the Petrillo cousins from Arsenic Incorporated. He got booted out of school when he was found selling cadavers, but they let him back in. Seriously? Like, how is this someone who should be given a medical degree? But, you know, he was white, male, and 24, again, at least in Philadelphia at the time. There were the only three requirements to get a medical degree besides passing an examination. Sexism and white privilege in the 1800s resulted in some seriously disturbed characters in our country's history. And it was after graduating college that he changed his name to Holmes because people would probably remember a name like Mudgett associated with stealing and desecrating corpses. Around the same time, his marriage fell apart, and quite honestly, that was a blessing in disguise for his wife, considering the heinous, depraved future that was in store for H.H. H. Holmes. Holmes left Michigan. He drifted for a few years. He lived in Massachusetts and New York for a short time. And then he lived in Philadelphia, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Holmes actually worked at the Norristown State Hospital, but quit after only a few days. 
He stayed in the city working as a pharmacist, but that sadistic streak of his just couldn't be kept at bay. While he was in Philadelphia, a young boy died as a result of taking medicine given to him by Holmes. Maybe it was a coincidence, or maybe it was this crazy, twisted freak falling victim to his inner demons. Either way, that was enough for him to leave town before people started asking questions. Soon after his time in Philadelphia, around 1886, he landed in Chicago, in an area that is now the suburb of Englewood on the south side of the city. And I wonder about his time in Philly, like if he hadn't murdered that boy from the pharmacy, would it have been possible that Holmes could have stayed in Philadelphia and set up his murder castle here instead of Chicago? Not like I'm happy he set it up in Chicago, I mean he shouldn't have done that anywhere, but it definitely makes me wonder. Now most of us know what happened in Chicago, how American Horror Story season hotel is based in part on the Holmes murder castle, but I'll share a little history lesson for any of you who haven't heard this tale. Holmes began his career in Chicago working in a drugstore, or an apothecary, on 63rd and Wallace Streets, and he worked for a woman named Mrs. Holden. Her business was flourishing, and it was just way too much business for her to handle, so she brought Holmes on as an apprentice. And with his dapper suits and what at the time would have been considered dashing good looks, um, ew, I look at pictures of him and think, gross, but you know, taste at the time, well, he drew the crowds with his skills as a chemist and his charming smile. Business was so good, in fact, that Holmes thought he could handle it himself. And suddenly, Mrs. Holden moved out west. I'm terribly sorry, folks. She left no forwarding address. Yeah, that's because she was dead. With all that money coming in from the pharmacy, within a few years, Holmes was able to purchase a vacant lot across the street. And that's where he began construction on his masterpiece. While he was building the castle, he expanded the drugstore to include a jewelry counter, he hired a man named Ned Connor to operate the jewelry business, and along with Ned came his wife Julia and his daughter Pearl. Now, during the latter part of the 1880s, Holmes had taken another wife, which is a pretty interesting feat considering his divorce to his first wife from childhood was never really finalized. Holmes' wife Myrtle stayed with her family and their daughter in Wilmette while he lived in Chicago, so it made it pretty easy for him to find a new side chick. Their marriage lasted only a few years because crazy old H.H., tried to poison Myrtle's father when he found out that Holmes had forged his name on property deeds. Yeah, that would probably be grounds for divorce. So in 1889, Holmes found himself as a single man, and it was ever so convenient that Julia, the jewelry man's wife, was just hanging around. Ned Connor eventually realized what was happening, and he cut his losses, and he left Julia and his daughter Pearl in the capable yet sadistic hands of H.H. H. Holmes. Now, if Holmes had used his powers for good, he probably could have been an incredible businessman, a philanthropist, like a pillar of the community because this guy knew how to make money, he knew how to charm, and instead, he used his intelligence, his education, and his debonair ways to swindle and steal and kill. And the castle, well, Holmes himself was the architect, and he went through multiple foremen and contractors because he didn't want anyone to stay end-to-end -end on the project and realize what he was actually building. A labyrinth of torture chambers. The hotel was three stories tall with a basement, and the first floor was pretty innocuous. It had the pharmacy, a few other shops. It was the upper floors where there was a problem. Now, at first glance, they appeared to be spacious rooms for guests because, after all, this was supposed to be a hotel. Yeah, hotel hell. Holmes' masterpiece was equipped with false floors, trap doors, rooms with no windows, there was a staircase that went up to the third floor and then led out to a deadly drop to the back alley below. Only a portion of the 60 rooms were actually normal functioning rooms. 
The rest were dedicated to Holmes' more deadly pursuits and quick exits via hidden chutes to the basement below where there were vats of acid and pits of lime to dissolve bodies. <laughs> oh, it's so gross. The stories about Holmes' murder escapades are legendary, but I'm going to jump ahead and tell you how he eventually wound up back in Philadelphia and the murder for which he was finally caught. In 1899, H.H. H. Holmes took a trip to Indiana to carry out an insurance scam, and he had an accomplice with him on that trip, a man named Benjamin Pizel. Holmes got away with the cash, but Pizel went to jail. He was eventually released, and the idiot partnered up with Holmes again on more schemes. Towards the end of Holmes' time in Chicago, after luring countless women to this hotel during the Columbian Exposition and keeping some of them there for months before dumping them in his lime pit, he met another young woman that he wanted to marry. In 1893, he met a woman named Minnie Williams, and Minnie was the heir to a wealthy Texas real estate fortune. Holmes and Minnie were engaged, and then suddenly, Julia and her daughter Pearl, now that was the woman he had been keeping shop with, she just disappeared. Sorry, folks, they moved to Michigan and left no forwarding address. Yeah, right, they were dead too. Minnie lived at the murder castle with Holmes for over a year, and it was believed that she was well aware of the unspeakable crimes that went on inside. She not only knew of Holmes' penchant for torture, but she participated in murders and scams right along with him. In 1893, Minnie's properties in Texas were deeded to Benjamin Pizel. Remember, that's the guy that ran insurance scams with Holmes in Indiana. Soon after that, Minnie's brother died in an accident in Colorado, which gave her and Holmes and Pizel access to even more property and more money. With all this money, Holmes, Minnie, and Pizel were able to pull off major fraud traveling to Texas to claim Minnie's family's properties and swindle horses. It was the biggest scam Holmes had ever pulled off, and it landed him in jail. That's right, folks. His first arrest wasn't for murder, but was for horse swindling. Apparently, people took their horses pretty seriously back in those days, and Holmes wound up in a St. Louis prison. When he got out of jail, he tried to fake his own death to bilk an insurance company out of $20,000, which would probably equal, I don't know, about two hundred and fifty dollars today. But the insurance company suspected fraud. So Holmes didn't push his luck. He dropped the claim. He went back to Chicago, where he and Benjamin Pizel concocted their plans to execute a similar scam that was sure not to fail. And this scam was going to take place in Philadelphia. Pizel and his wife went to Philly in the summer of 1894, and when he got there, he opened up a patent office under the name B.F. Perry. The plan with this patent office was to cheat inventors by selling phony patents and then concocting a scheme where Pizel and Holmes would fake Pizel's death, submit an insurance claim, and then split the windfall when the money came in. On September 4, 1894, there was an explosion at the patent office, and a local carpenter asked Philadelphia police to investigate. Once they broke open the door, there was a badly burned deceased man found inside. After about 10 days, when nobody came to claim the body, Pizel was buried in a potter's field. Police soon learned that the man was originally from St. Louis, and so they contacted the police there to search for next of kin. Holmes had set himself up as next of kin, and he collected the insurance money on Pizel. The joke was on Pizel. He thought his death was going to be faked when, in fact, Holmes murdered him. Immediately after that, Holmes left Philadelphia with Pizel's wife, Carrie, and the youngest Pizel children. For two months, detectives searched for Holmes. They were still unaware of all of the horrific crimes in Chicago. They were only searching for him for the murder of Benjamin Pizel and the insurance scams in Philadelphia, plus the horse swindling back in St. Louis. 
In November of 1894, Holmes was found in Boston traveling alone, and he was sent back to Philadelphia to stand trial. While Holmes was on the road, he dumped Benjamin Pizel's wife in New England and dumped Pizel's children in shallow graves in Canada. A third child of Pizel, a young man named Howard, was believed to be living in Indiana, but he was found burned to death in the stove of a house that was once rented by Holmes. Finding Howard Pizel's remains gave the police the open door they needed to search the murder castle in Chicago. And then the full extent of Holmes' crimes came to light. And I am not going to talk about what was found or how many women he killed because, like I said, vomit. I don't want to make anyone sick. Holmes was incarcerated in Maya Mensing Prison, which sat at South 10th Street in South Philadelphia. That's probably the neighborhood around Passyunk and Reed Street today. The prison is no longer there. It was operational until 1963, and then it was torn down in 1968, and now there's an Acme in its place. If you're not from the area, Acme is a chain of Philadelphia-area grocery stores, probably one of our longest-operating grocery store chains in the area. People from Philly call it Acme, but it's not. It's Acme. Two syllables, no extra A. Holmes' trial began in October of 1895, and for a time, there was some debate about whether he would stay in Philadelphia or be sent to Chicago and tried there, but ultimately the decision was made to try him here in Philly. On September 1st, weeks before the trial started, the body of Benjamin Pizel was exhumed from a potter's field, and his head was removed so that the coroner could use his head as evidence of skull fracture prior to the fire during Holmes' trial. Could you imagine a medical professional walking into a courtroom with a severed head? Like, do you call that Exhibit A? Holmes was arraigned on September 23rd. He pled not guilty. Give me a fucking break. And a trial date was set for October 28th of 1895. His trial was a sensation at the time, and I imagine it would probably be a sensation even today. There are countless articles in the New York Times from 1894 through till his execution in 1896. This was the trial of the century. Holmes was referred to as an alleged multi-murderer and arch-conspirator accused of more crimes than any man living today. That sounds like the headline of the National Enquirer or Us Weekly. And where did his trial take place? Right here in City Hall, folks, in our very own City Hall in the heart of Philadelphia. Holmes was charged with arson, bigamy, fraud, and numerous murders. So the news reports in the New York Times from October 28th, the first day of his trial, they're simply brilliant. And what it said was, the career of Henry H. Holmes forms the most romantic story in the annals of American police history. Having received a liberal education, being of genteel appearance, possessing convincing powers of speech and nerve and shrewdness that bordered on the phenomenal, he was ably equipped to prey upon his fellow man. These talents, however, according to Holmes himself, were directed even before he reached manhood to the basest uses, and for years he planned and executed a series of the most atrocious crimes ever perpetrated without interruption. Like, that is brilliant. Nobody writes like that anymore, and it's just fascinating and flowering, and I love it. So the morning the trial began, Holmes' attorneys requested to withdraw from the case. Judge Arnold, who was the judge at the time overseeing the case, threatened them with disbarment, and they still got up and walked out of the courtroom. This was shocking. Of course, though, later on, we come to find out this was a ruse that had been set up by Holmes, but nobody knew it at the time. 
So immediately, Judge Arnold appointed two more attorneys to represent Holmes, and Holmes said he didn't want these last-minute stand-ins and would therefore represent himself. And there's sort of a funny story that goes along with that first day of Holmes' trial. At the end of the day, Holmes asked the judge if he could have light in his cell and writing materials and paper to prepare for court, and these requests were granted because now he was going to be representing himself. Then he asked the judge if he could see his wife, and this brought on a huge argument from the district attorney that finally ended with the DA publicly asking Holmes, which one, sir? Because, you know, he married three or four, some he never divorced, some he killed. Holmes was forced to answer by saying, the last woman who married me. She declined the offer, so the judge allowed Holmes to write her a letter with a promise that it would be delivered to this young woman named Georgette, who was indeed the last woman to marry Holmes. The witness list in Holmes' trial in Philadelphia was like an episode of This Is Your Life, or at least who's left of it that you haven't murdered. And over the course of six days, in addition to the stories of scams and cheats and frauds of all sort, there were nightmare tales of what was found in the murder house in Chicago. Holmes was reported to be nervous, shaken, even crying at various points in his trial, but that was bullshit. Again, it was a ruse to elicit sympathy from the judge or the jury. Don't think for a minute he felt the slightest bit of remorse for any of his crimes or his victims. On November 2, 1895, in Philadelphia's City Hall, Holmes was convicted of first-degree murder of Benjamin Pizel. The jury left the courtroom at 5.45 that evening, and they returned less than three hours later with a verdict of guilty. The New York Times went on to report that if ever a man's black deeds rose to confront and convict him, that man was Holmes. Although he was only on trial for the murder of Benjamin Pizel, the tales of his decade-long killing sprees, scams, and fraud secured his fate even more so. On November 30, 1895, Judge Arnold denied Holmes' request for a new trial and sentenced him to be hanged by the neck until dead. Holmes took his appeal to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, where it was heard in February of 1896, and ultimately the Supreme Court denied his request on March 5th of that same year. Herman W. Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes, was sent to the gallows on May 7, 1896. In the months leading up to his execution, the Philadelphia sheriff received hundreds of applications of people who wanted to attend this macabre event. Of those, one stood out among the crowd, and it was a gentleman named Dr. Arthur McDonald. He was the head of the psychoneurological department at the Natural Bureau of Education in Washington. Dr. McDonald was a world-renowned psychoneurologist, he was famous for studying criminals, and he had developed an instrument called the chymographion. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. It sounds really stupid. But what this thing was, was it was a device that recorded invisible lines of human emotion. Right. He wanted to record the emotions of H.H. H. Holmes just before he stepped onto the gallows to determine whether or not Holmes was remorseful before his execution. So Holmes himself was consulted about the good doctor's request, which ultimately was denied. Philadelphia Sheriff Clement said the prisoner was entitled to a quiet, peaceful hanging. Dr. McDonald was actually in attendance at the execution, but he didn't get to use his Cairo my bullshit meter. Holmes was a cool cat up until the very end. Now, before his execution, he confessed to killing 27 people and was suspected of killing up to 200, but he denied all his crimes on the scaffold. And Holmes' hanging was anything but quiet or peaceful. On May 7, 1896, Holmes spoke his last words with his attorney, two priests, and the prison superintendent by his side. Gentlemen, I have very few words to say. 
In fact, I would make no remarks at this time were it not that by not speaking, I should acquiesce in my execution. I only wish to say that the extent of my wrongdoing and taking of human life consists in the contriving and the killing of two women that have died in my hands as a result of criminal operations. I wish to also state, so that there can be no chance of misunderstanding my words hereafter, that I am not guilty of taking the life of any of the Pizel family, of the three children, or of the father, Benjamin F. Pizel, of whose death I was convicted, and for whose death I am now to be hanged. That is all I have to say. The floor of the scaffolding set up at Mayamensing Prison in Philadelphia dropped at 10.12 a.m., but his neck didn't snap. It took 20 minutes for Holmes to die. He was pronounced dead at 10.22 a.m., and it would seem this is the end of our tale, but it isn't, because there's the curse of H.H. H. Holmes. Unexplained deaths that began just a few weeks after his execution surrounding persons associated with him or his trial. The first death was a gentleman named Dr. William Matten, a coroner's physician who was a trial witness. Dr. Matten died a few weeks after Holmes' execution from unexplained blood poisoning. Then the head coroner in Philadelphia, Dr. Ashbridge, died just a few weeks later. The trial judge, Judge Arnold, who sentenced Holmes to death, died. Both he and Dr. Ashbridge died of unexplained, previously undiagnosed illnesses. Now, this could all be coincidence, right? We're talking 1896. Medicine was not the world of modern marvels that it is today, and people succumb to illnesses much more easily and quickly 120 years ago. But there's more. The Mayamensing prison superintendent, who was present at the execution, committed suicide. One of the priests, who was also present at the execution, was found dead in his churchyard. He was robbed and beaten to death. The jury foreman died. One of Holmes' attorneys died. Over 20 years after his execution, close to 30 people associated with Holmes' trial died. Some coincidentally, but some from some seriously suspicious causes, many of these were from Philadelphia. There's even a book about the curse of H.H. Holmes. It's by an author named Adam Selzner. You can find it on Amazon. And again, many of these people were involved in the trial later in their life. People didn't survive all types of illnesses and diseases that we survive today. So is it coincidence? I don't know. It's fucking creepy, that's for sure. Now, how many of you knew that America's most notorious serial killer was busted in Twisted Philly? And for any of you living in South Philly, you probably know there's a little stone wall left along Reed Street. It's the only bit that remains from Mayamensing Prison. It's also where Edgar Allan Poe once slept off a drunken hallucinatory bender in 1849. Ah yes, Twisted History, how I love you so. And I've got so much more of that in store for our listeners in the coming months. Plus, there's going to be some crossover episodes with other podcasts. I've got an interview with a local author coming up. More twisted and sordid tales from our city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And since it's January, that means that CrimeCon is only six months away. I'm so excited. If you didn't get your tickets in 2016, the prices did go up a little bit, but you can still use the promo code TWISTED20 to get 20% off your ticket price. Besides all the famous guests like Nancy Grace, Aphrodite Jones, and dreamy Carl Marino, who is a former deputy sheriff who also plays the role of Lieutenant Joe Kenda on Homicide Hunter, there will be so many true crime podcasters in attendance, including me, the Insight Podcast, Already Gone, The Vanished Podcast, Actual Innocence, Up and Vanished, so many more. For me, this is going to be like Comic-Con, but true crime. And hey, I can do both, right? Well, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with me into 2017. 
We've got all sorts of twisted adventures in store this year, and I cannot wait to take you on this journey. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.